appreciate you being here and supporting the meeting here at this place. We're going to take just a moment. I know we're going to lose a few of our folks uh, potentially this afternoon. Just want to say, especially to these young folks, it's been a pleasure this week. Great to spend some time together and enjoyed it. Appreciate the invitation extended by the elders to be here and be a part of this meeting this week. It really, really has been a pleasure for Lisa and I to be here. Um, we've been all week long talking about stories out of the Old Testament, events out of the Old Testament. Romans chapter 15 and verse number 4 says, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. And this morning I want to take another individual from the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 11. If you'd like to turn there, Genesis chapter 11, verse number 25. And I want to talk about a man that could have been. And specifically his name is Tira. Very little do we read in the Bible about Tira. In fact, we're probably going to read almost everything this morning. Genesis chapter 11, if you want to follow along and read verse number 25. Nahor lived after he begat Tira 119 years and begat sons and daughters. And Tira lived 70 years and begat Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Tira. Tira begat Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran begat Lot. And Haran died before his father Tira in the land of his nativity in the Ur of the Chaldees. And Abram and Nahor took them wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. But Sarai was barren. She had no child. And Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his son's son, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth with them from Ur of the Chaldees to go into the land of Canaan. And they came into Haran and dwelt there. In the days of Terah, were 205 years and Tira died in Haran. Now you know there's been a lot of sermons preached about Abraham etc and I'm going to walk you through some of that lineage we talked about this week. Uh, this lineage here of Abraham, Isaac. Isaac had Jacob and Esau. But you know when you think about the concept of Tira, that chart could look totally different. In fact that chart could look like this. And all of those sermons we've been talking about all week long, we would have started off with Terah begat Abraham, or Abram, and Abram begat Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob and Esau, and that would have been the lineage we talked about, but we don't hardly ever talk about Terah. And there's probably a reason why. Now I want you to go back to this slide here. Terah started off, and he started off on a journey, and he took Abram, his son, with him, and they were headed to the land of Canaan, but they never got there. Oh, what could have been? The history that could have been changed. All the prophecies of the Old Testament. Galatians 3 and verse number 16 that says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He said, Not into seeds as of many, but as of one into thy seed, which is Christ, would have been to Terah and his seed were the promises made. But the verse didn't say Terah. He was headed to the land of Canaan, but never made it there. Now, we've got a little bit of an idea why Joshua chapter 24 and verse number 2 mentions Terah. It's one of the other places that mentions Terah. Joshua said unto all the people, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood in old time, even Terah, the father of Abraham, the father of Nacor, and they served other gods. Somewhere along the way, headed toward Canaan, he found himself serving other gods. 
prophets found himself to be an idolater and ended up dying in that land and never made it to Canaan. There's another place where he's referenced in the New Testament in Acts chapter 7 verse number 2 he said men brethren fathers hearken the God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Charon and said unto him get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and come into the land which I shall show thee. Then came he out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Charon and from thence when his father was dead he removed him into this land where and ye now dwell. So he's referenced there. I think there's one other place Tira's name is mentioned there in 1 Chronicles and it's only in a genealogy. That's all we have in Scripture about Tira. That's it. Man that could have been. He could have been the Abraham of Scripture, but he's not. Because he headed to the land of Canaan and he got sidetracked doing other things, serving other gods, never made the journey he started out to make. And all of that history, all the promises in Genesis 12 that I'm going to give you a land and I'm going to make a great nation of people out of you and thy seed shall all families of the earth be blessed. All those promises were given the very next chapter, chapter 12, 1 through 3, given to Abraham. And so all these sermons all week long, we've been starting with that chart with Abraham because that's what the chart would look like, right? That's what we talk about. Abraham begat Isaac. Isaac begat Jacob and Esau. But if Terah had actually been who Terah needed to have been, Terah would be at the top of that chart. That's who we'd be talking about because he'd be the father of Abraham. He'd be the father of the father of the faithful. That would be Terah. Okay? Now, if we follow that lineage of Abraham, it brings us ultimately to Christ. And I've jumped some generations there. But that fourth son of Judah uh, gave us Jesse and King David and Solomon. And ultimately, if you follow that lineage in Matthew chapter 1, you get to Jesus Christ. He came directly from the seed of Abraham. Well, really Christ came from the seed of Terah, didn't he? We don't ever talk about that because... Here is an obscure, kind of unknown individual in Scripture. All these things we talk about, the 12 tribes of Israel coming in, the 12 tribes of Jacob, the Jewish people, the great nation of people that came in and inhabited the land. All of that would be different because we'd be talking about Terah started that. He's the guy that started headed toward the land of Canaan. But Abraham was the one that ended up there. To see the timeline, Terah was born in about 2126 B.C., 2000. 126 B.C. Put him on that timeline. A man that could have been. What if? What if our sermons today were all about Terah and him being the father of the faithful? But they're not. Let me tell you why I, I get concerned about these kind of things. Is I look at these young folks this week and I think what a bright future. What a bright future the church has. Unless we get 50 years down the road and we say, oh, what could have been if only those young people would still be in the Lord. If only those young people would still be in the church. And I'll tell you too often generations look back at that and that's what they're saying about the previous generations. Oh, what could have been. In our part of the country, I don't know if, if y'all's history up here is similar or not, but in our part of the country back in the late 40s and mid 50s and early 60s, there was a lot of brethren that were fighting with one another in the church and it destroyed a lot of people spiritually. 
And I can look around the Gulf Coast area and the generation that preceded me, that next generation that would be in their late 50s or I'm about 50 years old, I'm 49, but those that would be in their late 50s or early 60s, we have very few of those guys in the church today. There's a lot of generations, a lot of families that got discouraged or lost. And here we are years later looking back going, oh, what could have been if only... That just breaks your heart. We've got congregations in some places that dwindle down to nothing. Maybe because brethren didn't get along with one another. Or maybe because of a lot of reasons. And, and it just breaks your heart to go back and look and go, oh, what could have been? We're kind of a people that could have been, though, in a lot of ways, aren't we? If only I had bought low in the stock market and sold high. If only 30 years ago I bought Walmart stock and today sold Walmart stock. If only we're kind of a people that could have been. What if, I think about my grandmother, she died in in the late 80s, but her husband died in 1947. My dad was seven when uh, his dad died. And they had a small farm and they sold the farm and moved 30 miles away to be closer to the church after her husband died. That farm they sold is now the new Temple, Texas. It's where the mall's at and the Walmart's at and all that. That's the old farm. You know, when she sold it, I don't know what she got for it, but I promise you they sold it by the acre. Now... They'd be selling it by the square foot because it would be very valuable property. So as, a, as an heir to that kingdom, I would be going, oh, what could have been if only she'd have held on to that farm for generations or whatever. We're kind of a people that could have been. We like to talk a lot of times about what could have been. But I want to tell you, there are some things that are absolutely so serious. We don't need to be a people that could have been. We need to be a people that make a decision today that we want to be somewhere at a particular time and we we work and we focus and we energize our efforts to get to that point, whatever that is. Let me tell you some of my concerns for these young folks. It wasn't that long ago I sat in college classrooms and one particular college professor I had, for instance, she said, if you're religious, you won't like this. Well, that perked up my interest and, you know, or piqued my interest and perked my ears up and because I considered myself religious and I was wondering if I was going to like it or not. And she said, and she got her overhead projector, that'll date me a little bit, but she got her overhead projector and, and she wrote on the overhead projector and I, I had Yancey get me a pad so that I could draw out. And this is what she put on the overhead projector. Now I'm not a very good artist, so you guys sympathize with me a little bit. Use your imaginations. And I want you to imagine for just a moment that this is a beaker. I know it looks like a square, but imagine for just a moment that it's a beaker. Here's what Dr. Shoemaker wrote on the overhead projector when I was in college. There's about a hundred kids in the college classroom and she said, if you're religious, you won't like this. We can create cell life in the laboratory. And she wrote these words up above the beaker. We can create cell life in the laboratory. And she said, here's how we do it. She said, we've really studied the beginnings of the universe and we really know a lot about what happened back then. And she said, in fact, you can take methane gas because we know methane gas was there and you can take carbon dioxide because we know carbon dioxide was there and you can put electricity to it and you will create cell life. Now this is her chart. 
That's what Dr. Shoemaker said. And there were a hundred kids in that room that listened to Dr. Shoemaker that day tell us that we could create cell life in a laboratory. Now, one of those kids, myself, there may have been others, but I don't know about them, was kind of curious about that. Really? It did kind of go against what I had been taught. That God puts life in a cell and that kind of thing. Really? Is that true? So I started doing some research. And one of the people I asked came from Texas A&M. So you can you know, give it whatever credibility you want to give. Yancey. But he said, I've actually done that experiment. And he said, half the time it doesn't work. The other time when it does actually work, he says what you actually get is not cell life, but you get primitive sugars and amino acids. That's what you get. And he said, that's not cell life. In fact, he said, that's the components of a cell wall. And that's not life at all. Well, that's interesting to me. So I went back to Dr. Shoemaker after doing a little more research and found out that the guy from A&M actually knew what he was talking about. And Yancey would know that to be true. And guess what? I went back to Dr. Shoemaker and I said, you remember a few weeks ago you were talking about creating cell life in a laboratory if you're religious, you won't like this kind of thing? Real sweet woman. Don't get me wrong. I loved her as a professor in a million ways. But I said, I did a little research on that and found out that you really only get primitive sugars and amino acids. And that's not cell life at all. And she said, well, yeah, but she said, that's the components of a cell wall. And we assume that if we can create the components of a cell wall, we can create cell life. There's a big assumption between those two things. That's not what she said in the classroom that day either. What she said in the classroom that day was, we can create cell life. And there's a big assumption between I can plant a rubber tree and I can make a tire. There's a big jump. There's a lot of things. (laughs) It's my first experience with the marker board. (laughs) Can you help me, Yancey? There's a big assumption between planting a rubber tree and making a tire. There's a lot of things that happen between those two things. And she didn't create cell life at all. Now, what's kind of interesting when we start talking about... Thank you, man. You're doing a good job. You're you're a great help. Thank you. If it happens again, I'll depend on you too. Um, There's... One of the things when you start talking about like creation and the theory of evolution and that kind of thing, there was a, uh, in history, years ago, there was an individual that came up with a theory. And his theory was the theory of spontaneous generation. And the idea of spontaneous generation was is that I'm walking down next to a lake and one day I see a stick and then I walk down there a couple of weeks later and I see a snake and I think, well... The stick turned into a snake. And he did some research and he found out that if you leave grain out and available, it'll turn into mice. And he, he really had a great theory going, for hundreds of years, we as a people, not you and I, but we as a people as humans, believed in the theory, the concept of spontaneous generation, because of this individual and he his theory that he could spontaneously generate mice and snakes and that type of thing. Then we got smart. 
And we thought, you know, if you watch long enough, you'll see somebody pick up the stick and you'll see the, the snake come in from somewhere else. Or you'll see the mice come in to eat the grain. And you'll find out it all. And basically what they were saying is use the steps of science, observation, develop a hypothesis and all those sort of things. And when you use those techniques, true science, you find out that really nothing spontaneously generated. But then that creates a little bit of a problem because another guy came along and said that in the very beginning of the earth, the way we got here as mankind was there was this big ball of gases. And that big ball of gases exploded. And over one particular part of the universe, that big ball of gases turned into particular chemical compounds that formed together, which created some amoeba-type life forms that were asexual. But then they began to go through mitosis and meiosis and the cell divided and split and and all of a sudden the, it began to put fins on it and then pretty soon it was flipping in and out of the water and went through the amphibian stage and then pretty soon it's standing up and you've got Zach Jones. That's, that's how we got here. And the whole theory was built on spontaneous generation, that there were some chemicals floating around in space that spontaneously generated and created life. That's the reason Dr. Shoemaker is saying today that we can create cell life in a laboratory because she's trying to protect a theory that says you and I came from some random chance, some explosion that happened at a junkyard and created a watch. That's what she's trying to explain to us happened and that's how man was created. Now I will tell you, there's a problem with that. But let's assume for just a moment that Dr. Shoemaker's right. I don't believe Dr. Shoemaker. I don't believe, I don't believe in spontaneous generation at the beginning of creation either, except for the fact that God said it and it spontaneously generated. There was a, a force greater than that, and it was a designer. And that designer had a design, and that designs you and I today. And that somebody is God. And we and Christians have an answer for that. And I, I believe that with all my heart, but let's assume for just a moment that Dr. Shoemaker's right. Let's just go with it. And let's just assume, I'm not saying she's right, I'm just saying let's assume for just a moment she's right. She still didn't answer the question, did she? The question didn't change and she didn't give the answer to the question. Because the Christian still has a question to ask. Where did the methane gas come from? Where did the carbon dioxide come from? Even assuming that it all spontaneously generated and created cell life and there was electricity and all that, you created cell life in a laboratory. Who put the methane gas there? Who put the carbon dioxide there? And I want to tell you, Dr. Shoemaker doesn't have an answer for that question. Because somehow it just appeared. And I want to tell you, even assuming that's right, the Christian's got an answer, and the answer is an almighty God. Now, I don't believe it spontaneously generated that way, etc. But that's a, here's the issue. And let me tell you why I'm concerned on the man that could have been. Because we're fixing to, or maybe already have, take a young group of teenagers and we're going to send them off to college and say, you guys go educate our children and make them smart and give them a degree and let them make a living and they can take that degree and go earn an income. And it's a great thing. Don't get me wrong. I'm not anti-education. You guys need to get an education. It'll help you. Many a segment of our society have been brought out of poverty and into affluence because of education. Education's a great thing. It's not an anti-education sermon, I promise you. What the sermon is, is we need to be preparing our young people for what's coming. We need to be educating our children now. I'm 
I'm not uh, necessarily recommending the book, but I want to I give you an idea of a particular book. There was a guy by the name of Ken Ham wrote a book called Already Gone. And basically the idea of his book was he was researching the fact that, and he's a denominational guy, he said that 80% of their young people that were running through their churches, they were losing. They were going to college and not coming home and going to church, or they're not going to church at all. 80% of evangelical, conservative type people, those children were leaving and never coming back home to church. And he was trying to investigate why, and he interviewed a lot of people, etc. And you can question his dad or whatever, all those things. But here's the general idea I want you to get from that though. Is his theory was that he came up or his conclusion he came up with after he researched his theory was that our young people are gone long before they go off to college. They're gone in high school. And the reason they're gone is because they're not trained for these things. It's not a matter of sending them off to college and college ruining them. Although college probably is not going to always give you the best influence. But you're not expecting college to be a Christian influence to you necessarily. You understand when you're at college there's going to be things that aren't necessarily Christian influences. But the idea of his book, his theory, his research, his conclusion was we're losing them way ahead of time because we're not giving them the foundations that they need before they go to college. And that's the point I want to make to you this morning. Parent. Be a mom. Be a dad. Be a grandparent. Give your kids the education they need. Give them the tools they need so that when they go to college they can be successful in college. They can understand what's being taught. Understand behind the scenes. Even understand if your professor lies to you and doesn't tell you the whole story. That you're okay because you're sitting there in question. And you know one of the things more than wanting to tell you the answers to things, what I'd encourage you to do is learn to ask the question why. How do you know? And think for yourself. One of the best things you can do for your children is to teach your children to think rather than tell them what to think. Have them think for themselves. Have them reason and, and analyze. How do we process information? Because I want to tell you what's going to happen in generations later is we're going to look back and go, oh, what could have been if only? If only we'd have given them the tools. If only we'd instructed them. And if only we'd have done. But instead of being that way, why don't we up front say, you know what we'd like is a good group of young people 50 years from now running the church. I want to tell you, I told you all the other night, but I'm 49 years old. I'm nearly 50. 20 years from now, I don't have that many more years. As young as I feel, I don't have that many more years. 20 years from now, I'm going to be 70 years old. I'm not, I'm not saying I'm going to be dead at 70. Maybe, but it may, you know, I'm not planning on it. But 20 years from now, some of you guys are going to be in your 30s. I want to come back to Denton and see this group of young people leading God's people in good ways when you're in your 30s and I'm in my 70s. I want to sit on the pew and and enjoy that true joy of knowing that you guys have the conviction in Christ that you need to have. God bless you guys. There's a bright future for the church. But it starts today planning for tomorrow. It starts today planning for the future. Getting the tools and skills and and the abilities today to be able to handle that in the future. Now there's another individual that I want to introduce you to. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 3. 2 Samuel chapter 3. Yancey, I'm going to touch this. so I'm going to hope it will stay. Um, 2 Samuel chapter 3 I want to give you kind of the background to the story but it's the story of Joab and Abner in the Old Testament 
And basically what happened is Joab and Abner had a, a struggle with each other. They were upset with each other. Abner was in a fight with Joab's brother Asahel. And Asahel basically was chasing Abner. And Abner even turned on him and said, Don't make me draw the sword on you. I'm going to have to kill you in self-defense if you draw the sword on me. Don't do that. And he drew the sword on him and then Abner killed Asahel. Well, now Joab is Asahel's brother and he's mad because his brother's dead. So he's going after the guy that killed him. Even though it was in self-defense, he's going after Abner. Now, in the story, we're going to read about a city of refuge. Now, it's good, it's called Hebron, but now I want y'all use your imagination again because I'm not a very good artist, but this right here is a city of refuge. I know it looks like a beaker, but it's a city of refuge. Now, in the story, we're going to read about a city of refuge called Hebron. And there were several cities of refuge, but in the Jewish history, you had options. If somebody was after you, if, if somebody was trying to hurt you in some way, you could go inside a city of refuge and you were safe. And you could then bring your case before the elders of the city, etc. They'd make a decision or a judgment on your situation. But you could get inside a safe place. So what happens as we read the story is Abner goes inside the city of refuge and Joab is outside the city of refuge and Joab's outside and he calls Abner outside the gate. Now pick up the story if you would. I think I've got a PowerPoint slide. 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse number 27. When Abner was returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the gate to speak with him quietly and smote him there under the fifth rib that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. So Joab's on the outside of the city and he says, Hey, Abner, out here, out here. And Abner steps outside the gate of that city and Joab kills him and stabs him under the fifth rib so that he dies for the blood of Asahel, his brother. He avenges his brother's death. Now, you've got to agree with me. That's not a smart thing to do. This guy's chasing me. I've gone to a city of refuge. I'm safe. And he says, hey, come here. Stand outside. No. <laughs> you know, I'm going to stay right here. I'm safe right here. You can't do anything right here. But that's not what he did. Abner stepped outside the wall of safety, outside the gate of safety, and he dies. And I want you to notice later, King David is lamenting his death. In 2 Samuel chapter 3 and verse number 27, sorry, verse number 32, they buried Abner in Hebron. And the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner. And all the people wept. So King David basically is preaching his funeral. And he says at the funeral, verse number 33, the king lamented over Abner and said, Died Abner as a fool dieth. Now you would agree with that, wouldn't you? I mean, those are not the words we like to use, but you would agree. That's got to be a foolish thing to do. You were inside the city of refuge and now you've stepped outside the city of refuge. That's not smart. You died as a fool dieth. And he's thinking of all the things Abner could have been for King David in his kingdom. Had great aspirations for him. But he's looking back going, oh, what could have been? But he died as a fool dieth. Let me make application to you and I. Are you inside the city of refuge? Are you inside God's holy city? Are you inside the church? I want to tell you Satan's outside going, hey, look out here. You know intellectually Satan would destroy you. 
You know He's out to spiritually destroy you. We are in a spiritual warfare. You know there's a lot of alluring things outside that say, hey, 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 out here. And sometimes folks die outside the city. They're outside the church because they got caught up in the allure of what Satan had to offer outside. To die in that condition, you'd have to agree, is to die as a fool dieth. That's a foolish thing to do. You're inside the church. You're inside safety. And you leave it. And die in that condition. That'd be the most foolish thing in the world. What if you were outside the city and you never went inside the city? That'd be foolish too, wouldn't it? You know you're going to be destroyed, but oh no, I'm not walking inside the the safe place. I'm not going to make a safe decision. I'm going to stay out here and I'm, I'm fighting Satan on my own. And die in that condition. Die as a fool die. That'd be a foolish thing to do. You'd have to agree. One other individual this morning I want you to look at that I think is a, a man that could have been is found in Acts chapter 26 with King Agrippa. The Apostle Paul is converted to Christianity. His story of his trip to the, on the road to Damascus is mentioned three different times in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 9, he repeats it again in Acts 22, and again in Acts 26. And in Acts 26, he's standing before King Agrippa. And I want you to notice verse 1 and 2. Agrippa said unto Paul, Thou art permitted to speak for thyself. And then Paul spread forth the hand and answered for himself. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because I shall answer for myself this day before thee, touching all the things whereof I am accused of the Jews. The Apostle Paul had persecuted the church of God. He had converted to Christianity. He's in custody. Uh, King Agrippa has heard about him and he's brought, he says, answer. You can answer these charges. You've got the opportunity to speak. And here the Apostle Paul says, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because I'm happy to answer the things I'm accused of of the Jews. I'm thrilled to be here to explain to you what's been going on. And he goes through the history of what took place. He talked about what happened to him on the road to Damascus, etc. All throughout chapter 26. I'll let you study that on your own at some point in time. But then he gets down to verse number 26. And Paul says to King Agrippa, The king knoweth of these things, before whom also I speak uh, freely. For I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him for this thing was not done in a corner he said this wasn't a secret thing you've heard about this Christ you've heard about this conversion thing that took place with me etc and I'm and he said I, I, I'm persuaded you know these things this wasn't done over in a corner somewhere hidden you've heard about these things and I'm speaking freely of these things look at verse number 27 Paul said King Agrippa believest thou the prophets I know that thou believest. Do you believe in what the story is I've told you about the Old Testament prophets that led you to Christ, that led to my conversion, that is speaking to you today to come to Christ? Do you believe those prophets? And y'all know the answer, don't you? What did Agrippa say? Agrippa said to Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Almost. I want you to focus in in that verse on that word. Almost. Thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Almost. What does almost mean? I almost scored the winning touchdown in the game. You lost the game. I almost shot the last basket as the buzzer went off. Almost. You lost the game. 
Agrippa says to Paul, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Almost. Y'all know what that word means, don't you? He wasn't a Christian, was he? And the records, historical records, we never show him coming to Christ. I don't know if he did or not, but I know here he didn't. And I want to encourage you this morning. We're going to sing a song here in just a moment. You're going to have an opportunity to make a decision. You can come to the front and sit down on the front bench. And the elders, I promise you, will help you with whatever that spiritual need is. But I want to tell you tonight, the greatest decision you can make is a decision to come to Christ. If you stay outside of Christ, that's like... Abner saying, I'm going to stay outside the city of refuge. I'm not, going to, I'm not going to go into the city of refuge. And if you die in that condition, you die as a fool die. And years later, people are going to go, oh, what could have been if only. We were at church with him last Sunday, but he never came to Christ. The preacher preaches at his funeral. He's lying horizontal in a casket. And the preacher is preaching, saying, almost... He came to Christ last Sunday. He even talked about it almost. But he never did. He never made the decision. I hope that 50 years from now, this group of people were saying they made a decision to be in Christ. And maybe it was one Sunday morning in Denton. Maybe it was at a gospel meeting that they held. But we can look back at the funeral and we can say, this brother, this sister made this decision this day. Because it's not an almost thing. It's not a person that could have been. It's a person that made a decision to follow Christ and they're inside the city of refuge. Maybe you're one this morning, you were inside the city of refuge, but you got caught up in the allure of what was outside. And you die in that condition. You die outside of Christ. And I want to tell you this morning, make the decision to get back inside the city of refuge. Make the decision today to come to Christ. Make the decision of repentance and prayer today. Make the decision to be inside the city of refuge. You don't want to die outside the city. Because you die as a fool die. Be the most devastating thing in the world. Now I can get up and I can preach a sermon. I preached a lot of them through the years. And I can say he's a good person. Or she's a good person. He helped a lot of people. She helped a lot of people. He was a part of the Chamber of Commerce. She was a part of the Chamber of Commerce. Served on the board. What a great seamstress she was. Or what a great welder he was. We can talk about all those things and you know what the audience wants to hear. You know the words that the audience wants to hear. The audience wants to hear, He's in Christ. But see, at this particular funeral, we can't say those words because He almost came to Christ. He had opportunity, but He didn't take it. Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. I hope that's not the story today for you. I hope on that day when somebody's lamenting over your death, they're saying, he not only was a good welder, or she not only was a good seamstress, but the most important decision she made was to be in Christ. And we're here today rejoicing in blessed are the dead that die in the Lord. God bless you in your decision this morning. We're going to sing a song. Make your way to the front. If there's anything the church can do for you, don't let the word almost keep you separated from God or outside the city. Won't you stand as we sing the song?